0: Chapter 6, Part A of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter 6 Of Circumstances Influencing Sensibility. Pain and pleasure are produced in men's minds by the action of certain causes, but the quantity of pleasure and pain runs not uniformly in proportion to the cause, in other words, to the quantity of force exerted by such cause. The truth of this observation rests not upon any metaphysical nicety in the import given to the terms cause, quantity, and force. It will be equally true in whatsoever manner such force be measured. The disposition which any one has to feel, such or such a quantity of pleasure or pain, upon the application of a cause of given force, is what we term the degree or quantum of his sensibility. This may be either general, referring to the sum of the causes that act upon him during a given period, or particular, referring to the action of any one particular cause or sort of cause. But in the same mind, such and such causes of pain or pleasure will produce more pain or pleasure than such or such other cause of pain or pleasure, and this proportion will in different minds be different the disposition which any one has to have the proportion in which he is affected by two such causes, different from that in which another man is affected by the same two causes, may be termed the quality or bias of his sensibility. One man, for instance, may be most affected by the pleasures of the taste, another by those of the ear. So also, if there be a difference in the nature or proportion of two pains or pleasures which they respectively experience from the same cause, a case not so frequent as the former. From the same injury, for instance, one man may feel the same quantity of grief and resentment together as another man, but one of them shall feel a greater share of grief than of resentment. The other, a greater share of resentment than of grief. Any incident which serves as a cause, either of pleasure or of pain, may be termed an exciting cause. If of pleasure, a pleasurable cause. If of pain, a painful, afflictive, or dolorific cause. Footnote: The exciting cause, the pleasure or pain produced by it, and the intention produced by such pleasure or pain in the character of a motive, are objects so intimately connected, that in what follows, I fear I have not, on every occasion, been able to keep them sufficiently distinct. I thought it necessary to give the reader this warning, after which, should there be found any such mistakes, it is to be hoped they will not be productive of much confusion. End footnote. Now the quantity of pleasure— or of pain, which a man is liable to experience upon the application of an exciting cause, since they will not depend altogether upon that cause, will depend, in some measure, upon some other circumstance or circumstances. These circumstances, whatsoever they be, may be termed circumstances influencing sensibility. Footnote. Thus, in physical bodies, The momentum of a ball put in motion by impulse will be influenced by the circumstance of gravity, being in some direction increased, in other diminished by it. So in a ship, put in motion by the wind, the momentum and direction will be influenced not only by the attraction of gravity, but by the motion and resistance of the water, and several other circumstances. footnote. These circumstances will apply differently to different exciting causes, insomuch that to a certain exciting cause a certain circumstance shall not apply at all, which shall apply with great force to another exciting cause. But without entering for the present into these distinctions, it may be of use to sum up all the circumstances which can be found to influence the effect of any exciting cause. These ON A FORMER OCCASION, IT MAY BE AS WELL FIRST TO SUM UP TOGETHER, IN THE CONCISEST MANNER POSSIBLE, AND AFTERWARDS TO ALLOT A FEW WORDS TO THE SEPARATE EXPLANATION OF EACH ARTICLE. THEY SEEM TO BE AS FOLLOWS. 1. HEALTH. 2. STRENGTH. 3. HARDINESS. 4. BODILY IMPERFECTION. 5. QUANTITY AND QUALITY OF KNOWLEDGE six strength of intellectual powers seven firmness of mind eight steadiness of mind nine bent of inclination ten moral sensibility eleven moral biases twelve religious sensibility thirteen religious biases fourteen sympathetic sensibility fifteen Sympathetic biases. Sixteen. Antipathic sensibility. Seventeen. Antipathic biases. Eighteen. Insanity. Nineteen. Habitual occupations. Twenty. Pecuniary circumstances. Twenty one. Connections in the way of sympathy. Twenty two. Connections in the way of antipathy. Twenty three. Radical frame of body. 24. Radical frame of mind. 25. Sex. 26. Age. 27. Rank. 28. Education. 29. Climate. 30. Lineage. 31. Government. 32. Religious profession. Footnote. An analytical view of all these circumstances will be given at the conclusion of the chapter, to which place it was necessary to refer it, as it could not well have been understood till some of them had been previously explained. To search out the vast variety of exciting or moderating causes, by which the degree or bias of a man's sensibility may be influenced, to define the boundaries of each, to extricate them from the entanglements in which they are involved, to lay the effect of each article distinctly before the reader's eye is perhaps, if not absolutely the most difficult task, at least one of the most difficult tasks within the compass of moral physiology. Disquisitions on this head can never be completely satisfactory without examples. To provide a sufficient collection of such examples would be a work of great labor as well as nicety. History and biography would need to be ransacked a vast course of reading would need to be travelled through on purpose. By such a process, the present work would doubtless have been rendered more amusing, but in point of bulk so enormous that this single chapter would have been swelled into a considerable volume. Faint cases, although they may upon occasion serve to render the general matter tolerably intelligible, can never be sufficient to render it palatable. On this, therefore, as on so many other occasions, I must confine myself to dry and general instructions, discarding illustration, although sensible that without it instruction cannot manifest half its efficacy. The subject, however, is so difficult and so new that I shall think I have not ill succeeded, if, without pretending to exhaust it, I shall have been able to mark out the principal points of view, and to put the matter in such a method as may facilitate the researches of happier inquirers. The great difficulty lies in the nature of the words, which are not, like plain and pleasure, names of homogeneous real entities, but names of various fictitious entities, for which no common genus is to be found, and which, therefore, without a vast and roundabout chain of investigation, can never be brought under any exhaustive plan of arrangement, but must be picked up here and there, as they happen to occur. End footnote. 1 health is the absence of disease and consequently of all those kinds of pain which are among the symptoms of disease a man may be said to be in a state of health when he is not conscious of any uneasy sensations the primary seat of which can be perceived to be anywhere in his body footnote it may be thought that in a certain degree of health this negative account of the matter hardly comes up to the case. In a certain degree of health, there is often such a kind of feeling diffused over the whole frame, such a comfortable feel, or flow of spirit, as it is called, as may with propriety come under the head of positive pleasure. But without experiencing any such pleasurable feeling, if a man experiences no painful one, he may be well enough said to be in health. End footnote. In point of general sensibility... A man who is under the pressure of any bodily indisposition, or, as the phrase is, is in any ill state of health, is less sensible to the influence of any pleasurable cause, and more so to that of any afflictive one, than if he were well. 2. The circumstance of strength, though in point of casuality closely connected with that of health is perfectly distinguishable from it. The same man will indeed generally be stronger in a good state of health than in a bad one. But one man, even in a bad state of health, may be stronger than another even in a good one. Weakness is a common concomitant of disease, but in consequence of his radical frame of body, a man may be weak all his life long, without experiencing any disease. Health as we have observed, is principally a negative circumstance. Strength a positive one. The degree of a man's strength can be measured with tolerable accuracy. Footnote. The most accurate measure that can be given of a man's strength seems to be that which is taken from the weight or number of pounds and ounces he can lift with his hands in a given attitude. This indeed relates immediately only to his arms but these are the organs of strength which are most employed, of which the strength corresponds with most exactness to the general state of the body with regard to strength, and in which the quantum of strength is easiest measured. Strength may accordingly be distinguished into general and particular. Weakness is a negative term, and imports the absence of strength. It is, besides, a relative term, and accordingly imports the absence of such a quantity of strength as makes the share possessed by the person in question, less than that of some person he is compared to. Weakness, when it is at such a degree as to make it painful for a man to perform the motions necessary to the going through the ordinary functions of life, such as to get up, to walk, to dress oneself, and so forth, brings the circumstance of health into question, and puts a man into that sort of condition in which he is said to be in ill health. End footnote. 3. Hardiness is a circumstance which, though closely connected with that of strength, is distinguishable from it. Hardiness is the absence of irritability. Irritability respects either pain, resulting from the action of mechanical causes, or disease, resulting from the action of causes purely physiological. Irritability, in the former sense, is the disposition to undergo a greater or less degree of pain upon the application of a mechanical cause, such as are most of those applications by which simple afflictive punishments are inflicted, as whipping, beating, and the like. In the latter sense, it is the disposition to contract disease with greater or less facility upon the application of any instrument acting on the body by its physiological properties, as in the case of fevers, or of colds, or other inflammatory diseases, produced by the application of damp air, or to experience immediate uneasiness, as in the case of relaxation or chilliness produced by an over or under proportion of the matter of heat. Hardiness, even in the sense which it is supposed to the action of mechanical causes, is distinguishable from strength. The external indications of strength are the abundance and firmness of know the muscular fibres. Those of hardness, in this sense, are the firmness of the muscular fibres and the callosity of the skin. Strength is more peculiarly the gift of nature, hardness of education. If two persons who have had the one the education of a gentleman, the other that of a common sailor, the first may be stronger, at the same time that the other is the hardier, 4. By bodily imperfection may be understood that condition which a person is in, who, at a stance, distinguished by any remarkable deformity, or wants any of those parts or faculties which the ordinary run of persons of the same sex and age are furnished with, who, for instance, has a hair-lip, is deaf, or has lost a hand. This circumstance, like that of ill health, tends in general to diminish more or less the effect of any pleasurable circumstance, and to increase that of any afflictive one. The effect of this circumstance, however, admits of great variety, inasmuch as there are a great variety of ways in which a man may suffer in his personal appearance, and in his body organs and faculties, all which differences will be taken notice of in their proper places. Footnote c b one title irreparable corporal injuries and footnote five so much for circumstances belonging to the condition of the body we come now to those which concern the condition of the mind the use of mentioning these will be seen hereafter in the first place may be reckoned the quantity and quality of the knowledge the person in question happens to possess that is Of the ideas which he has actually in stores ready upon occasion to call to mind, meaning such ideas as are in some way or other of an interesting nature, that is, of a nature in some way or other to influence his happiness, or that of other men, when these ideas are many, and of importance, a man is said to be a man of knowledge, when few, or not of importance, ignorant. 6. By strength of intellectual powers may be understood, the degree of facility which a man experiences in his endeavours to call to mind as well such ideas, as have been already aggregated to his stock of knowledge, as any others, which upon any occasion, that may happen, he may conceive a desire to place there. It seems to be on some such occasion, as this, that the words parts and talents are commonly employed to this head may be referred the several quantities of readiness of apprehension accuracy and tenacity of memory strength of attention clearness of discernment amplitude of comprehension vividity and rapidity of imagination strength of intellectual powers in general seems to correspond pretty exactly to general strength of body as any of these qualities in particular does to particular strength. Seven, firmness of mind, on the other hand, and irritability on the other, regard the proportion between the degrees of efficacy with which a man is acted upon by an exciting cause, of which the value lies chiefly in magnitude, and one of which the value lies chiefly in propinquity. Footnote, see chapter four, value, and footnote a man may be said to be of a firm mind when small pleasures or pains which are present or near do not affect him in a greater proportion to their value than greater pleasures or pains which are uncertain or remote footnote one for instance having been determined by the prospect of some inconvenience not to disclose a fact although he should be put to the rack he perseveres in such resolution after the rack is brought into his presence and even apply to him. and footnote. Of an irritable mind, when the contrary is the case. Eight. Steadiness. Regards the time during which a given exciting cause, of a given value, continues to affect a man, in nearly the same manner and degree as at first. No assignable external event or change of circumstances intervening to make an alteration in its force. Footnote. The facility with which children grow tired of their playthings, and throw them away, is an instance of unsteadiness. The perseverance with which a merchant applies himself to his traffic, or an author to his book, may be taken for an instance of the contrary. It is difficult to judge of the quantity of pleasure or pain in these cases, but from the effects which it produces in the character of motive, and even then it is difficult to pronounce whether the change of conduct happens by the extinction of the old pleasure or pain, or by the intervention of a new one nine by the bent of a man's inclinations may be understood the propensity he has to expect pleasure or pain from certain objects rather than from others a man's inclinations may be said to have such or such a bent when amongst the several sorts of objects which afford pleasure in some degree to all men he is apt to expect more pleasure from one particular sort, than from another particular sort, or more from any given particular sort, than another man would expect from that sort. Or when, amongst the several sorts of objects, which to one man afford pleasure, whilst to another they afford none, he is apt to expect, or not to expect, pleasure from an object of such or such a sort, so also with regard to pains. This circumstance, though intimately connected with that of the bias of a man's sensibility, is not undistinguishable from it. The quantity of pleasure or pain, which on any given occasion a man may experience from an application of any sort, may be greatly influenced by the expectations he has been used to entertain of pleasure or pain from that quarter. But— it will not be absolutely determined by them, for pleasure or pain may come upon him from a quarter from which he was not accustomed to expect it. Ten. The circumstances of moral, religious, sympathetic, and antipathetic sensibility, when closely considered, will appear to be included in some sort under that of bent of inclination. On account of their particular importance they may however be worth mentioning apart a man's moral sensibility may be said to be strong when the pains and pleasures of the moral sanction footnote see chapter 5 pleasures and pains and footnote show greater in his eyes in comparison with other pleasures and pains and consequently exerts a stronger influence than in the eyes of the persons he is compared with in other words, when he is acted on with more than ordinary efficacy by the sense of honor, it may be said to be weak, when the contrary is the case. Eleven. Moral sensibility seems to regard the average effect or influence of the pains and pleasures of the moral sanction, upon all sorts of occasions to which it is applicable, or happens to be applied. It regards the average force or quantity of the impulses the mind receives from that source during a given period. Moral bias regards the particular acts on which, upon so many particular occasions, the force of that sanction is looked upon as attaching. It regards the quality or direction of those impulses. It admits of as many varieties, therefore, as there are dictates which the moral sanction may be conceived to issue forth. A man may be said to have such or such a moral bias, or to have a moral bias in favour of such or such an action, when he looks upon it as being of the number of those of which the performance is dictated by the moral sanction. 12. What has been said with regard to moral sensibility may be applied mutatis mutandis, to religious. 13. What has been said with regard to moral biases may also be applied mutatis mutandis to religious biases. 14. By sympathetic sensibility is to be understood the propensity that a man has to derive pleasure from the happiness and pain from the unhappiness of other sensitive beings. It is the stronger, the greater the ratio of the pleasure or pain he feels on their account, is to that of the pleasure or pain which, according to what appears to him, they feel for themselves. 15. Sympathetic bias regards the description of the parties who are the objects of a man's sympathy, and of the acts, or other circumstances of, or belonging to those persons, by which the sympathy is excited. These parties may be, 1. Certain individuals, 2. Any subordinate class of individuals, 3. The whole nation, 4. Humankind in general, 5. The whole sensitive creation. According as these objects of sympathy are more numerous, the affection, by which the man is biased, may be said to be the more enlarged. Sixteen, seventeen, Antipathetic Sensibility, and antipathetic biases, are just the reverse of sympathetic sensibility and sympathetic biases. By antipathetic sensibility is to be understood the propensity that a man has to derive pain from the happiness and pleasure from the unhappiness of other sensitive beings. 18. The circumstance of insanity of mind corresponds to that of bodily imperfection. It admits, however, of much less variety, inasmuch as the soul is, for aught we can perceive, one indivisible thing, not distinguishable, like the body into parts, what lesser degrees of imperfection the mind may be susceptible of, seem to be comprisable under the already mentioned heads of ignorance, weakness of mind, irritability, or unsteadiness, or under such others as are reducible to them. Those which are here in view, are those extraordinary species and degrees of mental imperfection, which, wherever they take place, are as conspicuous and as unquestionable as lameness or blindness in the body. Operating partly, it should seem, by inducing an extraordinary degree of the imperfections above mentioned, partly by giving an extraordinary and preposterous bent to the inclinations. 19. Under the head of a man's habitual occupations are to be understood, on this occasion, as well those which he pursues for the sake of profit, as those which he pursues for the sake of present pleasure. The consideration of the profit itself belongs to the head of a man's pecuniary circumstances. It is evident that if by any means a punishment, or any other exciting cause, has the effect of putting it out of his power to continue in the pursuit of any such occupation, it must on that account be much the more distressing. A man's habitual occupations, though intimately connected in point of causality with the bent of his inclinations, are not to be looked upon as precisely the same circumstance. An amusement, or channel of profit, may be the object of a man's inclinations, which has never been the subject of his habitual occupations. For it may be that though he wished to betake himself to it, he never did, its not being in his power, a circumstance which may make a good deal of difference in the effect of any incident by which he happens to be debarred from it. 20. Under the head of pecuniary circumstances— I mean to bring to view the proportion which a man's means bear to his wants, the sum total of his means of every kind, to the sum total of his wants of every kind. A man's means depends upon three circumstances. 1. His property. 2. The profit of his labours. 3. His connections in the way of support. His wants seem to depend upon four circumstances. 1 his habits of expense, two, his connections in the way of burden, three, any present casual demand he may have, four, the strength of his expectation. By a man's property is to be understood whatever he has in store independent of his labor. By the profit of his labor is to be understood the growing profit. As to labor, it may be either of the body principally or of the minds principally, or of both indifferently. Nor does it matter in what manner, nor on what subject, it be applied. So it produce a profit. By a man's connections in the way of support are to be understood the pecuniary assistances of whatever kind which he is in a way of receiving from any persons who, on whatever account, and in whatever proportion, he has reason to expect should contribute gratis to his maintenance, such as his parents, patrons, and relations. It seems manifest that a man can have no other means than these. What he uses, he must have either of his own, or from other people, if from other people, either gratis or for a price. As to habits of expense, it is well known that a man's desires are governed in a great degree by his habits. Many are the cases in which desire, and consequently, the pain of privation connected with it. Footnote, see chapter 5, pleasures and pains, and footnote, would not even subsist at all, but for previous enjoyment by a man's connections in the way of burden, are to be understood, whatever expense he has reason to look upon himself, as bound to be at, in the support of those who, by law, or the customs of the world, are warranted in looking up to him for assistance, such as children, poor relations, superannuated servants, or any other dependents whatsoever. As to present casual demand, it is manifest that there are occasions on which a given sum will be worth infinitely more to a man than the same sum would at another time, where, for example, in a case of extremity, a man stands in need of extraordinary medical assistance, or wants money to carry on a lawsuit on which his all depends, or has got a livelihood waiting for him in a distant country, and wants money for the charges of conveyance. In such cases— Any piece of good or ill fortune, in the pecuniary way, might have a very different effect from what it would have at another time. With regard to strength of expectation, when one man expects to gain or to keep a thing which another does not, it is plain the circumstance of not having it will affect the former very differently from the latter, who indeed, commonly, will not be affected by it at all. 21. Under the head of a man's connections in the way of sympathy, I would bring to view the number and description of the persons in whose welfare he takes such a concern, as the idea of their happiness should be productive of pleasure, and that of their unhappiness of pain to him. For instance, a man's wife, his children, his parents, his near relations, and intimate friends. This class of persons, it is obvious, Will for the most part include the two classes by which his pecuniary circumstances are affected, those to wit from whose means he may expect support, and those whose wants operate on him as a burden. But it is obvious that besides these, it may very well include others with whom he has no such pecuniary connection, and even with regard to these, it is evident that the pecuniary dependence and the union of affections are circumstances perfectly distinguishable. Accordingly, the connections here in question, independently of any influence they may have on a man's pecuniary circumstances, have an influence on the effect of any exciting causes whatsoever. The tendency of them is to increase a man's general sensibility, to increase, on the one hand, the pleasure produced by all pleasurable causes, on the other, the pain produced by all afflictive ones, when any pleasurable incident happens to a man, he naturally, in the first moment, thinks of the pleasure it will afford immediately to himself. Presently afterwards, however, except in a few cases which is not worth while here to insist on, he begins to think of the pleasure which his friends will feel upon their coming to know of it. And this secondary pleasure is commonly no mean addition to the primary one. First comes the self-regarding pleasure then comes the idea of the pleasure of sympathy, which you suppose that pleasure of yours will give birth in the bosom of your friend. And this idea excites again in yours a new pleasure of sympathy, grounded upon his. The first pleasure, issuing from your own bosom, as it were from a radiant point, illuminates the bosom of your friend, reverberated from thence. It is reflected, with augmented warmth, to the point from whence it first proceeded, and so it is with pains. Footnote. This is one reason why legislators in general like better to have married people to deal with than single, and people that have children than such as are childless. It is manifest that the stronger and more numerous a man's connection in the way of sympathy are, the stronger is the hold which the law has upon him. A wife and children are so many pledges a man gives to the world for his good behavior. Footnote. Nor does this effect depend wholly upon affection, among near relations, although there should be no kindness, the pleasures and pains of the moral sanction are quickly propagated by a peculiar kind of sympathy. No article, either of honor or disgrace, can well fall upon a man, without extending to a certain distance within the circle of his family. What reflects honor upon the father? Reflects honor upon the son. What reflects disgrace? Disgrace. The cause of this singular and seemingly unreasonable circumstance that is, its analogy to the rest of the phenomena of the human mind, belongs not to the present purpose. It is sufficient, if the effect be beyond dispute. 22. Of a man's connections in the way of antipathy, there needs not anything very particular to be observed. Happily, there is no primeval and constant source of antipathy in a human nature, as there is of sympathy, There are no permanent sets of persons who are naturally and of course the objects of antipathy to a man, as there are who are the objects of the contrary affection. Sources, however, but too many, of antipathy are apt to spring up upon various occasions during the course of a man's life, and whenever they do, this circumstance may have a very considerable influence on the effects of various exciting causes. As on the one hand a punishment, for instance, which tends to separate a man from those with whom he is connected in the way of sympathy, so on the other hand one which tends to force him into the company of those with whom he is connected in the way of antipathy will, on that account, be so much the more distressing. It is to be observed that sympathy itself multiplies the sources of antipathy. Sympathy for your friend gives birth to antipathy on your part against all those who are objects of antipathy, as well as to sympathy, for those who are objects of sympathy to him. In the same manner does antipathy multiply the sources of sympathy, though commonly perhaps with rather a less degree of efficacy. Antipathy against your enemy is apt to give birth to sympathy on your part towards those who are objects of antipathy, as well as to antipathy Against those who are objects of sympathy to him. End of part A of chapter six.